Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for tonight's talk on the meaning of life by Robert Rowland Smith. Robert's probably going to speak for the better part of an hour. I think he's open to being interrupted as he goes through. He'll say something about that in a moment, and then we'll be taking questions afterwards. Um, now is the time, please, to make sure that you've got your mobile phones and other devices turned off. Uh, Robert Rowland Smith was for seven years a prize fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. He's now a consultant, lecturer, and a writer on philosophy, literature, and psychoanalysis. As well as broadcasting for BBC Radio and Television, Robert has contributed to the Philosophy Bites podcast series, and I think currently has a column on everyday dilemmas in the Sunday Times magazine. Uh, Robert's a faculty member at the School of Life, where he runs a breakfast club and teaches courses on love and family. He's also a founding editor of the award-winning journal Angelica, to which he has contributed articles, of course, and he sits on the editorial board of its associated book series in the humanities. In conjunction with his literary ventures, Robert is an independent management consultant. He specialises on issues of strategy and change with boards and senior teams, and he coaches chief executives. Over the past 12 years, his clients have included, I hope I get this right, uh, the Foreign Office, English Heritage, Pearson and Barclays Bank, among many others. Uh, Robert has a large number of publications, some of which I think are for signing outside afterwards and will form an orderly queue for the signing at the end of this session. He was the author in 1995 for CUP of Derrida and Autobiography. Uh, amongst his more recent books, there is Breakfast with Socrates, which I think came out in 2009, uh, Driving with Plato, which is due out tomorrow, so hopefully is outside, uh, and then uh, with Edinburgh University Press from 2010, Death Drive, Freudian Hauntings in Literature and Art. Uh, it, it's very good to see so many people here uh, for this cunningly entitled talk tonight, which conjures up so many obvious things, Plato to Monty Python clearly, um, and we look forward very much, Robert, to what you have to say to us. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. Now, uh, the first test, of course, is to see if the technology works, so uh, let me just see. Nothing happening. Nothing happening. <clears throat> Can I have somebody to help me get these to work? Perfect. Thank you. 
So, uh, here's the first lesson about the meaning of life. Things don't always go to plan. And uh, if I walk up and down, tell me if you can't hear me, because I'm not sure what the acoustics are like at the top. Um, uh, you may very kindly mention my, the work I've done um, consulting, and I once had as a client the Ministry of Defence. I remember being in a meeting with the board of the uh, Ministry of Defence and hearing circulated a famous phrase, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And uh, I think there's a bit of that tonight. Um, I might come back to the notion of chance events and what happens to interrupt things that you've planned as we go through. Um, but first of all, I just want to talk about uh, the overall notion of uh, meaning and the meaning of life. Uh, and I want to punctuate it by talking about milestones because part of the issue when we talk about the meaning of life is precisely the fact that it's an overblown, such a big, such a big overblown question. Uh, you mentioned Monty Python. Some of you may recognize the still from the film. And it's a very uh, notable fact that uh, the question about the meaning of life is to many people uh, a pretty humorous one. Or you, you mentioned the phrase and uh, people chortle. Uh, and I think that there's something specifically British about that response. And I think it's no accident that uh, it's Monty Python uh, who's, who's taken that up as the title for a, a film. Uh, if, for example, you were to give a lecture in Paris on the meaning of life, uh, you wouldn't have quite the same uh, sort of chortling around the subject. So I think uh, there's an important point there about how we even conceive the notion of the meaning of life and something about national characteristics in it, which we can talk about further. Um, the seriousness of the question, uh, nevertheless, has been pretty hotly debated. And uh, I want to get into why that is the case. But first of all, uh, remind you of the notion of uh, meaning en général, what we mean by it. What we mean by it. Of course, the meaning of meaning is as much of a parody subject as uh, the meaning of life. But I just want to say a couple of things about the idea of meaning before we talk about life itself. I should say, if you want to uh, uh, challenge me or ask questions or throw tomatoes or whatever as we go through, uh, please do, so we don't just wait until the end of the questions. So if there are things that I would like to challenge or ask about, please, um, please come in. Um, so the meaning of meaning, let me just talk briefly about this. The formidable character here is Edmund Husserl. Those of you who've studied uh, philosophy will know that Husserl was a big influence on Martin Heidegger, uh, who's one of the principal channels, I guess, through whom uh, Husserl now gets read. He was a big influence on Derrida, of course. Derrida wrote his uh, early work, doctoral work, on, on Husserl. And uh, to put it very simply, what meaning is for Husserl is about uh, bracketing off things that don't make so, um, to use a very homely example, uh, my youngest daughter is learning to read at the moment. She's uh, four, and we placed it here as opposed to 18. She's uh, four, and she's learning to read. And I notice when she learns to read that she will uh, bracket out words she doesn't understand. So she will skim the text and pick out words she does, but also screen out words she doesn't understand. And what she's doing in that process, which is a phenomenological process, is uh, bearing out really what Husserl says about meaning, which is that 
meaning is as much about bracketing things off as including things. So we create meaning by selection in some sense. There is something about excluding possibilities which allows us to latch onto them and make sense of them. So sense-making is partly about exclusion as well as inclusion. And Husserl goes on to talk about phenomenological reduction. Uh, I can say more about that if you'd like. But the, uh, the point I want to get across at the moment is the idea that meaning involves exclusion. So if you want to make sense of something, you can't take everything in. Um, you think about other ordinary everyday examples about people. We need to take in, uh, or reading the newspapers, you need to take in the headline, which excludes the detail before you can get onto the detail. So we've got to have the, um, the capacity to winnow things out and separate things off. So, um, if you buy that, we then go on to the opposite concept or possibility, which uh, isn't symmetrically opposite. There's a rather different idea altogether that uh, life, in particular, and all things associated with it, might be utterly meaningless. Now, uh, probably a more famous icon than I mentioned than Edmund Husserl. This is obviously Jean-Paul Sartre, as uh, lots of you will know. And um, in probably his most famous book, I guess, uh, or at least philosophical book, Being and Nothingness, he talks about the meaninglessness of life. And it's worth just dwelling on this before we make the assumption that uh, life does have a meaning and what it might be. Um, essentially, Sartre talks about chance. So, for example, the fact that the slides were at the beginning were actually very Sartre in the moment, because chance effectively for Sartre dominates the whole of life. It's chance rather than necessity by which we are bound. And in this, he's going back to a, a, an ancient Greek tradition, really, which distinguishes between chance and necessity. And he's very much of that uh, line of thinkers that stretches all the way back to Democritus beyond, which says, no, the, the world is not fundamentally orderly, the world is fundamentally chaotic. And his innovation, I guess, is to then apply that to individuals. So the life of individual people is meaningless in the sense that it's utterly random. And you can think about this, one can think about this in terms of one's own life, and just uh, meditate on the sheer accident of the fact that you are born uh, in a certain year, in a certain place, of a certain race, of a certain class, and so on. I mean, it's uh, an extraordinary fact that we are, uh, to use a Heidegger word, just thrown into this thing. You know, we find ourselves to be male or female, for example. It's no, not all religions would believe, would believe that. And I'll talk about the ways in which religion tries to save us, I guess, from the meaninglessness that we'd otherwise uh, fall into. But for Sartre, there's no religion anyway. There is no God, and that's partly what creates the meaninglessness. Because, not least because, in a world ordered by God, uh, the element of chance would be tamed to some degree. So we have the notion of the taming of chance. And indeed, there's a long tradition uh, which associates chance with the devil. So, uh, something viral, something vicious. That's the very word vice uh, means turning, turning away from things. It's, uh, it's, it's diabolical. 
the, the, the possibility that the world isn't structured down a straight path but has all these devious twists and turns is a kind of diabolical, is a diabolical notion. So Sartre says we are born in this utterly random state and uh, I'm, I'm given to believe, I don't know how true this is, that if you were to do the statistics, there are probably st statisticians in the room tonight, but if you were to actually work out retrospectively what the chances of you being born are in terms of who you are, your genetic coding, a certain time and place and so on, it's statistically virtually impossible. I mean, our births, the fact that we exist absolutely are virtually impossible, but uh, I'll stand, uh, I'll wait to be corrected on that by people who are better at statistics than I am. Yeah. Your example of the computer protocol yeah. was only chance because you had an expectation that it would work, but yeah. somebody who says it's after you came out and said it all is perfectly predictable, yeah. you wouldn't have anything to speak to. Yeah. So in a sense, the randomness of the society depends on the expectation you set of things happening. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, that, uh, that plays into the whole notion of predictability. You know, in a certain sense, I could have predicted it was just as possible for it not to And um, it's an argument used a lot by empiricism. I mean, I've just been thinking about David Hume, who some of you will know, uh, who wrote about, uh, his famous example was billiard balls. You know, you can predict up to uh, a large degree uh, the angle of which billiard balls will fire off one another. But every now and again, one of them will skid or bounce or go off the table. So there's, for him, an essential element of chance which can't be predicted. And that means we should be very reticent, very chary about constructing theories of the world of any kind. Because a theory, in a sense, tries to generalize, tries to summarize, tries to say, I am taking account of as many instances as possible and trying to suppress chance. So I think it goes straight back to that, uh, that point. So what do we do? If, uh, like Sartre, we believe we are cast, thrown into the world in a completely random fashion, uh, where there's no God, no religion, to alleviate that possibility. Well, for Sartre, uh, in a sense, there is a silver lining to that cloud. And Sartre effectively says, well, if there is no transcendent there's no ultimate meaning, there's no theological meaning, there's no God-given meaning, then what's to stop us from creating one for ourselves? You know, there is no uh, law, there is no morality, there's no prior prejudice with regard to how we should behave. So why on earth don't we just make one up for ourselves? And in this, Sartre draws a lot from Nietzsche, at least tonally, he draws a lot from Nietzsche. He's saying, effectively, it's down to us to create meaning. Now, it's not meaning per se that Sartre wants us to create. What he's trying to say is we need to make a shift from uh, the meaninglessness, the randomness of our own lives to making them feel or appear or be necessary. Sorry, can you hear me off at the top? You can. Tell me if you can't, please. Um, and how do you do this? Well, for Sartre, the ultimate way of bringing meaning to your life is to make a political act, to act politically. 
And in this, you're making a shift from what he calls the en soi to the pour soi. So we're all born in an en soi environment. So we're just here in ourselves. But we've got no pour soi, which means being for yourself. We're just there. We're not doing anything to positively bring alive or affirm our existence. And for Sartre, the way you do that is through acting politically. I call Sartre, with his money where his mouth was, and joined the Communist Party, marched in the streets of Paris, very politically active. He and Simone de Beauvoir um, were constantly challenging status quo in all sorts of ways. So for him, political action was really the ultimate way of establishing meaning and engaging uh, with the world. Now, you can dispute that, you can take issue with it, but for him, that was the way you create meaning, is through action, through an act. And I mean, it's hard to underestimate just how a famous influential Sartre was in the 1960s. His uh, fortunes have uh, been more various since. But he was a key influence on the events of So that's one way out of it. But of course, there are much more dolorous, upsetting, tragic responses to the meaninglessness of life. And uh, here, of course, is one answer. Now, suicide, I'm going to give you two understandings of uh, two interpretations of suicide. One is that it's a perfectly rational response to the Sartrean claim, Nietzschean claim, that life is utterly random, it's completely meaningless, you didn't ask to be born, and yet you're just here. Uh, so in that sense, it's a completely rational uh, response. You are, in a sense, acting, you're creating an act, the act of suicide. It's not a political act, but it's certainly an act. The act, the act is the act to end all acts. Uh, but there's another way of thinking about it, and um, in this we get into the whole territory of what it means to be a human being, because um, one of the extraordinary uh, faculties we all have, or I think all of us have, is the faculty to terminate our own lives. It's an extraordinary fact and possibility that we can do that, all of us. I'm not encouraging you, this isn't some sort of death cult I'm trying to make it uh, although, you know, uh, something to do on a Wednesday evening. Um, it's an extraordinary fact that we have within our genes the uh, possibility of putting an end to our lives pretty much whenever we like. Uh, it's not hard to do. And the fact that it's possible to do it says something about our relationship to ourselves. It says we have a self, effectively. It says we own ourselves. I have the right over my life. Now, the religious challenge to that, I won't point at you every time I say the word religion. <laughs> It'll be the typecast as the religious lady from uh, the rest of the evening. Okay. Um, uh, we don't have to uh, think of it as a bad thing because the very notion that we can take our own, we can take our own lives, even if we don't, suggests more vividly, more viscerally perhaps than anything else, that we have a self, that we are people, that we are in charge of, that we own, we have, have self-ownership, we own ourselves. And although clearly suicide has happened throughout history, 
there is something particularly modern, or modernist even, about the concept of the self and self-ownership. Now, uh, Michel Foucault, who is somewhat contemporary with uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, makes a great deal of this notion of the self and the care of the self and the exercise over the self. And he says, in his, particularly in his later works, he says um, the best way really to bring meaning to one's life is to take advantage of the fact that we are in possession of our own bodies. Now, we don't necessarily want to do ourselves in for uh, Foucault, ultimately, the form of kind of self-ownership uh, was, in his later life, sexual experimentation and political action. So there's a bit of Sartre uh, in it. Uh, but he also thought that our ownership of our bodies is one of the key things in which we are um, in a state of uh, perfect selfhood, self-ownership, if you like, which is not available to the state to um, take away from us. So Foucault writes a lot about um, this like early work, in a classic work that some of you might know about. He talks about institutions like the prison uh, and so on, and he talks a lot about surveillance. He talks about the ways in which the state, or ideologically, is always trying to intervene between ourselves and ourselves, to interrupt the relationship we have with ourselves in some way, deprive us of that, get in there, and own us. And uh, suicide is a kind of limit case, but it does suggest ways in which we are, can be resistant to being owned by, brainwashed by, indoctrinated by ideologies that Foucault and indeed Sartre and Nietzsche would find rebarbative or reprehensible in some way. So, I'm not recommending suicide, I want to make that absolutely clear. Nevertheless, there is something about the possibility, the ability to take your own life, which suggests that you own yourself. And, you know, when teenagers say, well, it's my body, it's my life, you know, in a sense, it's a very modern sentiment to think you can own your own life. And just a last word on Foucault here. He would contrast that, say, to put it very in very crude terms, with the sort of medieval view of the world, whereas if you're a part of the slave race, uh, your body isn't owned by you. One of the definitions of being a slave or a serf is that your body, yourself, is owned by your master. So selfhood, in that sense, is a huge advance in freedom. I mean, it's almost literally a uh, synonym for freedom, for self. It means I have a sphere of action which is not penetrable by the state or the crown or the lord or the master or whatever it might be. Suicide's a very extreme case of that. Nevertheless, it does indicate something about selfhood and freedom and our ability to uh, act on ourselves, in ourselves, with ourselves, without being um, uh, influenced or manipulated by others. Uh, now this theme of a kind of essential selfhood, I want to talk about essential solitude later, but this notion of essential selfhood I think is absolutely key to what the meaning of life might be, but I will come back to that. So, um, suicide is one answer. Now, I'm going to sort of resurface, come up for air a bit, having gone down to those uh, uh, rather 
compressed depths early on and talk about some more classic answers to the meaning of life. <coughs> and then I want to sort of break it down a bit because, again, it's still such a big subject. I want to break it down, talk about some of the milestones along the way. So, um, I talked about the self and how, uh, although we take it as an ahistorical universal term, in a sense it can be dated the notion of a self. And Again, in very simple, generalizing terms, you could argue that the idea of perfecting the self is an idea we get really from the Renaissance, Renaissance humanism, Leonardo image. And what it says is, if we want to create meaning for ourselves, one of the ways we can do that in a post-medieval world is instead of uh, assuming life is just given and we just have that we can change that, we can improve ourselves, we can perfect ourselves. And there is a, not just Leonardo, but I suppose a man called Pico della Mirandola, another kind of Italian humanist, thought a lot about this idea that you can actually perfect yourself in some way. So you're born into this random state, or whatever it might be, but you can improve yourself. And today, we know this through um, the industry of self-help, for example. Self-help the concept of self-help is predicated on the idea that you can improve yourself in some way, you can better yourself. You start at point A and you can reach with enough application point B. Uh, but this is a classic answer to how you create meaning. You create meaning through self-improvement. And uh, hence the concept of becoming a renaissance man. You, know, you become skilled, you become capable in all sorts of disciplines. So. Uh, think about the Machiavellian tradition of the prince, and you think about um, all the kind of guidebooks written in the Renaissance on how to be, particularly in kind of courtly environments. They emphasize uh, chivalric skills, not just sort of mastery of the horse, but mastery of diplomacy, for example, uh, mastery of oratory, mastery of love. If you want to restore or enhance or express your fundamental humanity, the way to do that is to be very, very good. And you be very good by acquiring skill. You become effectively perfect. And if that sounds egotistical or hubristic, in a sense what this picture is saying and what that doctrine is saying is the more perfect you become as a person, the more adequately you are reflecting or representing the divine gift that it is of being human. It's a gift to be alive, not, as Sartre says, a kind of cursed gift. And one of the ways of acknowledging or allowing this gift to fructify is to make yourself as perfect as possible. And then you get a whole doctrine of humanist education, schooling, learning, you know, universities, predicated on the idea that you can be improved in some way, and that improvement's a good thing, and that it reflects the wider cosmic order of the world. So this is a classic example, I think, I'd argue, has, it, has its roots in a sort of Renaissance humanism, still played out today very strongly in this notion of self-help, the idea of self-improvement, very relevant beginning of the year as people go on diets and all the rest of it. 
Um, so that's one classic answer. Let me give you a couple more. Classic answers to how to make life meaning, meaningful. Another classic answer. Okay, well, if uh, you're still not convinced that the idea of perfection of the self uh, isn't actually rather vague or egotistical, you can say, well, actually, the way to really make life meaningful is to dedicate myself to others. Florence Nightingale, of course. And the idea is then not selfhood, but the opposite, selflessness. It's the dedication to the other. And um, people who work, for example, in charities, in the third sector, the voluntary sector, and indeed in education, but also nursing, and so on, will talk about wanting to make a difference. And the making a difference very often takes the form of selflessness. It's the opposite, it's the inverse, really, of what we were just saying. The way to bring meaning to your life is actually to dedicate yourself to others. heard the question here, but um, the challenge is, it's not really the opposite, because you're still getting some gratification if you dedicate yourself to others. I don't know um, if you're familiar at all with the writings of T.S. Eliot, particularly his more theological writings uh, towards the end, sort of late 30s, 40s, 50s. As you know, uh, T.S. Eliot, very committed Anglo-Catholic, he wrote a lot about this notion of what it meant to be pure, and in Christian theology, you know, if you want to be pure, you have to be very ascetic. You know, self-denial is at the heart of it. It talks about the via negativa, the negative way. You know. And what he talks about, what exercises him all the time, is that no matter how good you try to be, no matter how you dedicate yourself to others, no matter how purely you pray, there's always some return. There's always some gratification. No matter how hard you try to be good, the fact that you know you're being good, the satisfaction you get from that is always going to corrupt it. There's always a, you know, it's like those experiments where you can't remove the observer from the experiment because there's always a, there's a human stain in all of that. There's a limit on uh, dedicating yourself to others because there will always be some yield of satisfaction or happiness. So pure goodness, you know, pure saintly devotion is... Uh, Perhaps impossible. It's perhaps impossible. Go ahead. Pure 
person, if, if, if I really got to that point, then effectively I'd be making myself some kind of god. And that's inappropriate. You know, it, it's, it's a, an attempt at becoming divine, which is just not what human beings should be about. I mean, human beings are flawed. It's part of our humanity to suffer that little bit of narcissism and imperfection. So there are kind of other ways of dealing with the kind of logical loop you get into. But anyway, it's a classic answer. If you want your life to be redolent with meaning, dedicate yourself to others. A couple more answers. We've talked a bit already about this. Uh, service to God. You know, if you want real meaning, in fact, we don't find it in the world. And in fact, the meaning of life is actually the meaning of afterlife. The trouble with life is that it is too fallen. It's too earthly. You want to align yourself, assimilate yourself, catapult yourself as quickly as possible into the heavenly realm, and therefore you dedicate yourself to, to God. Of course, it's not that different necessarily from the idea of dedicating yourself to other people. Uh, I won't say more about that because we touched it on religion. I just want to, in this preamble, just finish with a, a slightly more unusual thought on the idea, a thought on the subject. This, uh, if you don't. Anybody recognise this character? No? W. B. Yeats, the Irish uh, poet, called himself the last romantic. And um, Yeats argued that you've got to make a choice. You've got to either dedicate yourself to your work or to your life. And there's no fudging. Right? Either work or life. And by work, he's got in mind that kind of rarefied work that people like poets do, I suppose. So uh, that kind of obsessive dedication. And you can think, I mean, there are lots of stories of writers, painters, artists who are utterly obsessed with their work. And it extends to entrepreneurs, I guess, as well, and to others, maybe religious fanatics too. But this idea that if you want to be really good at something, you've got to thoroughly saturate yourself in it. You know, to the point of giving up your relationships, you know, whatever it might be, family, children, and so on. You've got to make a choice. You can't have it both ways because one corrupts the other. If you try to be a painter by day and a dad by night, your painting's not going to be as good, effectively. And uh, vice versa, you know, you can't can't live a proper life if you're always trying to uh, be a good painter, poet, whatever. Now, it's an extreme view, but it's a very interesting one, because we're talking about modernity, I think one of the characteristics of the current moment we're in is that we believe we can do it all in some way. It may be hard. We talk about the challenges of work-life balance, classically, but I think... Uh, we are getting to a point where we think we can have it all. You can have a great life and be uh, an extremely talented musician, or whatever it might be. Uh, so it's an yeah, interesting moment we're in. Yeah, he says, no, you've got, to, you've got to choose. You've got to choose. And interestingly, it, it makes life itself become like a work of art. You, know, you make your life brilliant, as you would make a painting brilliant or an overture of brilliant, or, or whatever it might be. But that's the kind of surprising undervalue, I think, of this, this point. So you've got
got to choose between life and work. And it's the choice and the focus that comes that will in turn generate, uh, generate meaning. So um, I'm going to move on a bit now and break this question down a bit because the trouble with uh, these big questions, they are very big and very indigestible. And I'm piecing out and we've got to break it down. Um, since I cut and paste this image the other day, it makes my eyes go for me because I can't work out how many legs. <laughs> Raises the other question or related question, which is uh, Does it matter if your life is meaningful or not if it's meaningful to others in the eyes of others? So we routinely project all sorts of stuff on celebrities or tennis players or whoever it might be. Very few of us know that many celebrities as it happens, but you know, all sorts of fantasies and hopes and desires get played out onto them, so they become meaningful. So uh, I was just reading a thing about Kylie Minogue in The Guardian today. I switched between being and nothingness, Sarge and Kylie Minogue and Guardian. And um, I, I, I don't know the first thing about Kylie Minogue, but um, clearly she creates meaningful people. You know, people latch onto her and what she does and how she spends her life and so on are ways in which people um, derive satisfaction, derive meaning for their life. So, I mean, she may be. But um, we can't. And uh, the kind of more homely version of that is to say, uh, well, you know, I mean something to my kids. You know, that would be a very good answer to the question. You know, is my life meaningful? Well, yeah, because I've got kids who need me, who depend on me, and uh, I matter to them. You know, I might think I'm pretty insignificant, I might think my life is pretty boring, or even worthless, even meaningless. But 
the fact I'm dad is unassailable. You can't gainsay your position uh, with other people. So, in a sense, it leads you to that thought, you know, meaning is actually in the eye of the beholder rather than in the self. Yeah, go ahead. I'm intrigued that you've used the word divine a few times. Uh, I don't understand how you can use some a concept like that, which is which defies explanation, in fact, it's almost impossible to define, yeah. in trying to understand what the meaning of life is. Yeah. Well, uh, so the question is, I don't know if you've heard that, but um, the question is about uh, how I can be so cavalier with the use of the word divine, given that uh, you know, divine is almost impossible to define anyway. Well, uh, one way of answering that is to say it's the indefinability. It's the fact we don't know anything about God if he, she exists. It's the very fact we don't know anything about him or her, really, that makes him, her, it, other. And the otherness of the divine is precisely what's compelling about it. You know, it's not something that we can source from within ourselves. We can't get an answer to what God is. No one's actually proved finally if God or God does or doesn't exist. I mean, the debate goes on, right? As far as I know, nobody's actually come back with a report saying, yeah, here's a picture. And he lives at this address. And And so the otherness of the divine is part of the definition. It's definitive of the divine to be, as you're implying, other. And so for us, human beings... You know, part of the human condition, again, to be grandiose about it, is to live with the fact that we will never know. No matter how clever we are, no matter how much Richard Dawkins we read, or how much Bible we read, we will never definitively know the answer to the question of whether there's God or not. We will all die, we will all go to the grave, not, not knowing. We might believe, we might believe that God exists, we might believe God doesn't exist, but I submit, none of us will go to the grave actually know, definitively, empirically, scientifically, thoroughly, metaphysically, in whatever form that God exists. We may believe it, we may not believe it, but we will never, ever know definitively. No one has ever known. In the history of humankind, no one has actually known whether God exists or not. And that limit on our knowledge, that circumscription of our faculties of knowing defines us. And it's part of what it is to be human, is to not know about God. We don't know. There are certain things which we just are completely in the dark. And it's part of what it is to be human, to be in the dark. And how we then deal with that you know, it's what it means to be alive. You know, you can't be alive in a state of total knowledge. You never, you never do it. It's impossible. Is that not just a, a, a non-religious view to say that? I mean, I, I, I'm no believer, but right. having, having um, not been against with all the people who are, they, they believe that Jesus Christ's view was yeah. that the disciples did, and they read the Bible, so they do. Yeah. 
don't know if God exists. I thought, I can't prove it. I've got, you know, I haven't got, you know, surgery, I haven't got the answer, you know. Um, woman yeah. um, goes to India yeah. uh, on some kind of yoga retreat yeah. and she has this experience as she's meditating so she says that she's beyond she finds it difficult to express with words yeah. um, and some ancient philosophers have mentioned this as well um, that they have an experience which is beyond words where in that moment it is God that they're experiencing. Right. But obviously because it's beyond the intellect. Yeah, okay, I get it. Okay, so I hope you heard it this time. Some people have experience, but it's inevitable, it's beyond words. I find, I don't think that deals with the, we're not gonna have the whole debate about whether God exists or not, uh, but while we're on this small subject, we'll just tie it up. No, I get, I get the question, I get the question. So what about people who uh, have the experience that's beyond words? Well, okay, it's still an experience. It's a subjective experience. It can't be shared. To know something has to be shareable. You know, it's in principle to be shareable. You know, it has to be scientific. It's got to withstand being exposed to other people who can ratify or verify. So, uh, again, for me, people may disagree with the, the And so, it returns us to this point that there are certain big questions that we will never know the answer to. Not knowing, the state of not knowing is definitive. In some ways, it's not just to be human. And how we then deal with that is up to us. And I think, um, I'm very interested in psychoanalysis, and I'll talk a bit about this later, but, um, uh, you know, philosophy can help us articulate, frame, pose, and answer lots of questions, but it's less good helping us tolerate the ambiguities or the answerlessness that sometimes we're led into. And although lots of philosophers are very sniffy about psychoanalysts or psychoanalysis, I think uh, there is a huge, huge role for psychoanalysis today in helping us tolerate the ambiguity uh, that's around us, and particularly some of these very fundamental ambiguities, facts that we just don't know whether there's a problem. We don't know what happens to us when we die. They're fundamental things. Now, we can just throw up our hands and say, I don't know. Or we can find tools, methods, resources uh, to deal with that. And for me, psychoanalysis, because it um, uses as part of its stock in trade, I guess, um, Techniques for helping us to cope with ambiguity, I think, is one of the ways in which, you know, we can learn as human beings. You know, um, I don't want to get too evangelical about it, but I think there's a, 
in a certain sense, I have to put it very crudely, psychoanalysis is a more uh, mature discipline. I mean, philosophy is all about giving answers. Well, you know, look at the history of science. You know, all answers are only ever provisional. Only ever provisional. You know, the best answers we have always get superseded. All theories ultimately fall. You know, we're always, we're constantly in the same provisional certainty, not absolute certainty. What do we do with that? Well, we've got to find ways of dealing with it. For me, psychoanalysis is one of the ways. Yes, please. Uh, not quite sure if I understand that being meaning of life for the individual, or yeah. meaning of life for the community. Yeah. And if it is meaning of life for the purpose, yeah. something we don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a good point about community, too, because, uh, not least because I was listening to a thing about big society in the car on the way up, um, but um, I mean, as well as dedicating yourself to others, there is, I think, there's a different kind of meaning effect that gets released in a group. And groups create meaning, and one of the key meaning factors in a group is just the fact of belonging. So, you know, I am in a group with my family, and we all belong in a certain genetic way. I am in a group with, um, I know, a football team or something, we belong in another way. So belonging itself has a meaning effect. It generates meaning. You know, I know I'm with people now. That means something. So when somebody uh, you know, wears a red football shirt, that means something. Now. It's like, okay, I'm with them. You know, they're, they're one of us. And that's a very profound way, I think, and a, a kind of different route out of some of these difficulties. Have you got your hand up? No. Um, now, uh, so the milestones of life. Another chance uh, The milestones. Now, um, there are lots and lots of milestones, clearly. Um, I'm just going to pick out one or two. And I'm conscious of time as well, so we're already uh, towards half past seven. Uh, I'm just going to pick out one or two. Um, uh, first of all, this notion of being born. Um, what's, you know, what's interesting for me about that is that the moment you're born, your life splits in a sense into two. Firstly, you're born and you keep going down in time, the physical track. Right? Your body exists in time. You can't get off that track. Right? No matter what you want to do, you can't physically move your body. We can, none of us can get back to the beginning of this lecture physically. Right? Exactly how we were. State of digestion in our stomach state of energy or loss of it subsequently or whatever it might be. Okay, you can't. You cannot physically go back to 6.30. Mentally, you can go back. You can go back to the start of the lecture, the disaster with the slides, taking your seat, first thing I said, your first impression of me, the introduction, and so on. You can do that, right? In your mind, you can hop about all over the place. In fact, you're not tethered even to reality. During the course of the last hour, You'll have been listening to 50 to 70% of what I've been saying, probably. And a portion of your brains will be thinking about, you know, holiday, what we're doing, what we're doing after this, what you did earlier, yeah, what somebody else is doing, what you're doing three, what's worrying you, money, sex, problems, you know, all sorts of things. In the last hour, I'll bet, well, you can put your hand up, you can say, with 100% attention, concentrated on everything that was. I'd be very surprised if anybody does. People don't work like that. 
But it does take us back to what happens when you're born, which is that you, you bifurcate into two tracks. One is a physical track, which you can never get off. From the moment you're born, you're on a track towards getting to death. Yeah, getting older. Yeah. You will get older from the moment you're born. There's no getting off that. You can't, nobody can reverse that. But, depending on your view of the developed nature of babies' brains when they're born, they're already, in consciousness, able to do relatively complex things which aren't just about being the present. You know, there are also desires and all the rest of it, and there's some arguments saying that babies even dream and wound, so the mind is already detached its moorings from time. You know, it's all over the place. Extraordinary fact, really, that you know, when we talk about our life, it's two things. You know, it's, there's the story of our life, which is this thing that pops about, and there's the kind of physical fact that we are, we just cannot get off that physical temporal. We are on it. No, no getting out of it. Thank God we have the faculty of imagination. You know, thank God we can sit in this lecture and think about dinner tonight or, or whatever it might be, because that's the thing which, um, in a sense, rescues us from the pure bodilessness, bodyfulness of being a human. And it splits off. Now, uh, a classical argument says that animals don't do that, that animals just live in time. Right? Classic argument. I, think, I don't think that argument is going to stand up for very much longer. All sorts of, and I know, animal psychologists or whatever, but I, th I think that prejudice that says there's this radical difference between humans and animals just can't stand another century of being supported. I'm sure, I mean, it's inevitable, isn't it, that we will find more and more out about animals and animal brain functioning that will prove that the more sophisticated ones, at least, can also, you know, think about the future as well as the past and so on. But it's, a, it's an extraordinary faculty we have to live outside of time that we're given. Um, I'm going to keep going and just pick out a few of the time. Um, some of the milestones we go through, learning to walk, learning to talk, it's the Tower of Babel, uh, starting school. I'll just say something briefly about starting school. Um, it's the first milestone we pass that's really the first properly cultural milestone. Now you could argue the circumstances of your birth are already uh, pretty cultural. I mean, for example, you know, where I live in the Peckham in South London, in the posh bit, um, near East Dulwich, it's very kind of yummy mummy part of London. And of course, there's a big fad there for water births and home births and all that stuff. Right? So uh, you could say your very first milestone is already cultural, the way you're given birth, it already contains lots of class prejudices and aspirations and all the rest of it. But on a bigger scale, starting school is probably the first cultural milestone you go through as opposed to a physical one. And uh, I won't just talk about French people today, but Louis, Louis Althusser, um sort of contemporary of Sartre, is pretty vitriolic about this milestone that is school, because he says, uh, not only is it the first cultural milestone we all pass through, but it is saturated with the wishes of the state. So it's not like And he says, schools exist, as in universities, schools exist 
to produce conformist citizens. That is a <coughs> Absolutely, it is a very westernized view. And uh, if you think of somebody like uh, Rousseau, for example, another Frenchman there I am, um, but you know, he'd argue the opposite. He'd say, uh, in fact, we do need to get out of that Western way of thinking, which says we've got to go to school. In fact, um, the less school, the better. You know, children, there's something wonderfully wild and untamed and naturally civil in the best sense about children. Let's not put them through school, because that actually dehumanizes rather than humanizes them. Althusser is very strong in this idea that schools and indeed universities exist to produce conformist subjects that will serve the state. That's what you go to school for. Right? You might think you're there to learn stuff. Uh, you are there to become a conformist citizen. Same goes for universities. You're there basically, and, and, you know, and in a sense, it's a radical view, but you can say, well, you know, Oxford and Cambridge might make to Oxford. It's a surprise that most of my friends are now successful partners in law firms, they work for the BBC, they're earning quite a lot of money. Oh, I'm going to have one to go to Oxford. Ah, what an extraordinary thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I've made the point. Um, learning to ride a bike, uh, having your first kiss. Now I want to say something about kissing and your first kiss. Funny. Uh, put up your hand if you can remember your first kiss. <laughs> There's something we can't remember your first kiss or somebody can put up their hand. Sorry? French theme going on, but that's what it's like. Um, three types of kissing. Uh, from a psychoanalytic perspective, I'm thinking here, uh, there's a book by Adam Phillips, who's a psych British psychoanalyst, called On Kissing and Tickling and Being Bored. I don't think you've come from this book. Anyway, he glosses uh, Freud on the subject of kissing. It's very interesting. And the first kiss we have is with our mothers. It's not kiss in the sense that we understand, but it's a kiss in the sense that there is. You know, often contact between the mother's and the baby's mouth, you know, a kind of affection kiss. And there's a, a kind of zoological anthropologist called Desmond Morris, some of you might know, um, who talks about why kissing feels good later on in life. And he says it's because, as a baby, uh, there's this link that we have to our simian cousins, to monkeys and so on. Because apparently, 
what monkey mothers will do is chew up the food sort of pre-digested. It's disgusting, really, but they'll pre-digest it and then effectively pass it over into the mouth of the child. So food is associated with sustenance, and it's a good thing. And so later on in life, when we kiss, there's not just the erotic uh, quality it has, but also the fact that there's something about it, subliminally, which reminds us of the good feeling of Um, now, if that's stage one, excuse me, if that's stage one, stage two is rather tragic, as a lot of things are in after you know, uh, years. You've not only got the Oedipus complex to deal with, you've got the fact that um, at a certain point, this very close, intimate, oral, suckling relationship with your mother, and I know this is very normative, Everybody has mothers, some babies have the bottles of the breast and so on, and that's very normative. Put that to one side. Uh, but we then move on to this rather tragic phase where we don't have the same oral satisfaction and gratification. And indeed, we recognize that we've lost the object. The object was the mother, the mother's breast, the mother's mouth, whatever it is, we lose that. We sort of recognise that in some way we need an object to work with so that we can become gratified in some fashion. And this, uh, for Freud and for Adam Phillips, is kind of where narcissism really properly begins with the fantasy, not really the reality, the fantasy that we have to kind of kiss ourselves because mummy's gone. We're not yet sexually mature, so we have to fill the gap somehow. So we develop a sort of narcissistic fantasy that we can kiss ourselves. So the self-kissing, whether, I mean, the closest you could ever get is kiss the mirror and um, Jane Brown. Kids do, interestingly, often try it. Um, but they recognise they can't actually get the same gratification from kissing kiss the mirror. But nevertheless, it's, it's a key moment in narcissism. You want to substitute yourself, you want to get all your gratification from yourself. And that's kind of the origin of masturbation and all the rest of it. So that's phase two. It's rather tragic because you can't get what you want. And um, you have instead this sort of hollow representation of yourself. So narcissism, in a way, when we think of narcissism as indulgence, in a way, it's a kind of compensation. about people being vain or narcissistic and we use it very pejoratively as a term but um, you could understand vain narcissistic people as just living out this sense of tragedy or disappointment all the time. They're getting satisfaction from themselves because at some point something was taken away from them and they're correct. So if you think of vain people you know narcissistic people instead of being judge, judgmental about them just run the experiment in your head, just ask yourself, you know, what was it that was taken away from them at some point? What are they missing that has led them to derive so much satisfaction from themselves? You know, what are they missing? So uh, the answer is, you know, love. You know, people who are not in relationships often very painful. Third phase is the kiss, as we know it. As 
Rodin uh, sculpted it here. One of the most famous kisses, I think, that there is. And of course, in this, everything comes together because we've now, in the Freudian account, managed to find a replacement for the mother. But the replacement is not a straight substitution, despite what people think about psychoanalysis. Uh, not everything is a father substitution or a mother substitution. Although Freud did not say, uh, a cigar is sometimes just a cigar. But the skill, if you like, on becoming emotionally mature is that you can transfer that onto another person, adult, who isn't your mother. So part of growing up is precisely being able to tell the difference you want to tell the difference between your mum and the person you're kissing is uh, quite a useful and fundamental skill. And not everybody can do it, but it's, it's quite important. And that is part of maturation. Um, I can talk more about kissing, but uh, again, I'm conscious of time. I want to leave some time for questions. I'll just pick out one or two. <coughs> One or two more. Um, of course, not everybody does this in this order. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course. Devil 
tempts me away. I will make it happen. In other words, I will control time. I will control events. It's an extraordinarily powerful thing to be doing because you don't know what's going to happen. Not actually managing time, you are just saying something. I do. You know, it's two two words. How many words you use in whatever language you may have to be in? You are laying over time an intent that you say is incorruptible and unassailable. And that, uh, for certain philosophers, actually, is the very source of ethics. All of ethics. I'm thinking of. Compulsive, but I'm thinking of Paul Ricoeur now, um, who talks about promising and the ethical aspects of it. And in a sense, for him, all ethics comes about from promising because it says, "I will stay true to a responsibility. I will stay true. I will make that responsibility come true, regardless of all the other things that disrupt time and me." And the stuff around us, events, dear boy, happenstance, happenings. Well, the promises are very often unilateral. You are promising something in return, probably for another promise that the other person will do likewise. You're a promise to your promise. That's a condition to it. Yeah. So it's kind of self verification. It's all saying, I can't control nine things, but I control one, so I feel comfortable in that. Yeah. yeah. It's always a bit of an equation rather than Yeah. And the kind of classic form that takes is, is the witnessing or the being held to account. So if you promise without anybody hearing, there's a real question about whether the promise is valid. Now, you can say, well, hang on a minute, I made a New Year's resolution the other week to stop eating crisps. You know, I made a promise. I didn't tell anybody, but I'm not going to eat crisps for three days. Right? Um, but you could argue, actually, what you do when you do that, when you make resolutions, you are fabricating an inner self that you're promising to. So, you know, you are, in a sense, constructing the um, effigy of somebody internally that you will be faithful to. I'm going to stop eating crisps for the whole year. I'm telling myself, I construct, effectively, what you do when you make resolutions. It's construct a kind of fantasy self, an alter ego, that you then use to hold yourself without accountability or without responsibility doesn't, doesn't work. That is the other dimension. So it's cross time to another, even if the other is the sort of pseudo-self. But it's an extraordinary uh, fact, and it does say something like that, I think, about human power and our ability to control chance and about the nature of responsibility. Because after all, I mean, what would responsibility be if you just said, I'm going to go with the flow? I don't know what's going to happen. We'll see. You know, it's a way of advocating responsibility. You say, I don't know, I can't commit to anything. There's no, there's no ethics, there's no responsibility, there's no social clue, even. You just give yourself over to that. Just very quickly, a couple more things. Um, <coughs> Uh, just very quickly on this. <laughs> very quickly. Um, see, people snigger when you talk about anti-crisis, but um, there's a distinction, I think it's worth bearing in mind, between midlife crisis and a reaction to it. And 
I think we often mistake one for the other. So we think about, you know, poor John, and usually it's male, interestingly, when we think about midlife crisis. Uh, poor John, you know, he's going through a midlife crisis, he's bought himself the Porsche, he's going out with a trophy girlfriend, he's bought himself an electric guitar, whatever it might be. Um, and it is pretty risible, it's, it's humorous because it's inappropriate. But often it's the reaction to something rather serious, which is um, people have run out of self-esteem, they've run out of oomph. Writing this book about Marshall, one thing I noticed is that it's very front-loaded. If you look at your life as a whole, most of the life-changing things, most, most of the milestones anyway, happen very early on. You know, being born, learning to walk, talk, starting school, getting a virginity, riding a bike, getting a first job, getting married, having children. Typically, all of those happen in the first 30 years. And if, we're, if it's true, I don't know if you saw these reports, we're all going to live to 100, one in five, did you read about this? One in five Britons is now going to live to 100. Well, we live to 100, and most of the stuff happens in the first 30 years. 70 years of recycling the memory. There's something about midlife crisis which I think is just a response to the deceleration that comes along, comes along in those months. That's a very good point. I mean, what about people who are retire at 50? You know, there's been a fashion for early retirement uh, in the last generation or two. You're living a relatively affluent life, which is kind of running out. But, you know, if you retire at 50 and live to 100, 50%. Fifty percent of your life is retirement. Well, that's an extraordinary possibility, and it's not just possible; it's reasonably probable. Reasonably probable. Um, so there's a distinction between the crisis itself and the response to it, what a midlife crisis uh, really brings on. Um, getting divorced. do this by um, just reminding you, I'm sure it can't be long since you've read Heidegger's Being and Time, cover to cover, um, so I'll just remind you of one thing he says about death in that, uh, which is that death has two primary characteristics. One is that it can happen at any time. So we have this working notion that death is something that happens at the end of the line, down the track. You know, when we're seven, you know, three, four years and ten, when we're seventy or now hundred, he says that's a fundamental misconception. Death can happen any time. It's fundamentally random. It's connection to the first part. But it is fundamentally accidental in character. It can happen any time. We describe it as an aberration when young people die before their years. He says no, that is that is the character of death. Second point, and this is the uh, point I want to finish on and get into a slightly wider point, which is that nobody can die for you. You can't outsource a delegate 
might sound a ridiculous idea, but there's a huge vein in Christian, and not just Christian tradition, about sacrifice, which says you can die for somebody else. Precisely, the origin of sacrifice, even holiness, is the claim or the intention to put yourself in place of somebody else, to take their pain forward, to sacrifice yourself, to take the bullet. It's a fundamental prejudice, almost, a fundamental way of thinking about what it is to be good, even. I mean, sacrifice, we think of as a good virtue, a quality that we should all have more of. Sacrifice is doing something for the sake of somebody else, takes us back to Florence Nightingale. But what Heidegger says is, you, you can't die somebody else's death for them, and therefore, so the I would sacrifice my life for my children, as I'm sure most parents would, like that. Absolutely no question. Right? Think of that dreadful, heart-rending film, uh, Sophie's Choice. Do you remember that? Terrible. Where a woman is forced to choose which of her children is going to be uh, taken away. And, uh, but it's a misconception, because if I sacrifice myself for my children, I am still not dying their death. I am dying my death. It's only my death that I ever die, not theirs. It works as a sop, one hopes, to the people who would otherwise cause their death, but they're not causing, I'm not taking on their death. And you can never get in, you can never stand in somebody else's death. Heidegger makes this point. Very interesting consequences of sacrifice and virtue and all the rest of it. The reason I want to finish on it is because I think it says something more about this idea of what milestones are. Um, I won't talk about the afterlife, we haven't got time, but I, uh, about what milestones are and the notion of solitude, which I mentioned at the beginning. Because um, the fact that we, nobody can die for us. Um, is definitive. And it's not just death. The truth is, nobody can be born for us either. The truth is, nobody can take a medical exam for you. Nobody can work out for you. I go to the gym, I was on the treadmill this morning, much as I would like to say to a friend or my wife, you know, can you do the workout for me today? You know, I'm really tired. Nobody can work out for you. Nobody can take the exam for you. These things cannot be outsourced. There are certain things they tend to gather around our milestones in our life that are simply ours to own. Right? And they speak, for me, to one side of the equation of what it means to be human. One side of the equation is that there is an essential solitude that cannot be penetrated. There is something about being who you are which means nobody else can stand there. No matter your degree of empathy, no matter your degree of sympathy, no matter your ability to imagine what it's like to be somebody else, no matter your attempt to sacrifice yourself, no matter your goodness, your virtue, and so on, you cannot be in somebody else's place at those key moments. And that, for me, speaks to a fundamental, impenetrable solitude that we all 
the dentist. Say somebody will have a dentist appointment tomorrow, probably, in the room or next week. Maybe you can go having a haircut. You know, it doesn't have to be heavy things like that. There are certain things about what it means to be you which cannot be shared, cannot be broken out. Which suggests that effectively the kind of myth of Robinson Crusoe that's supposed to be an energy of Robinson Crusoe is kind of right. You know, it's kind of an allegory of what it means to be human. But of course, the other side of the equation is the fact that we can launch boats outwards from that. So, yeah, we are islands, but we have the capacity to launch out from them. Let's not be deceived about what's involved in our solitude. It's true. And maybe that's where things like psychoanalysis help again. You know, how do we deal with these fundamental facts? But in a sense, what we're doing when we are socialising, sending out boats, in a sense, is compensating for something profound that is the condition we find ourselves in. So I'm going to stop. We've only got a couple more minutes for, for questions. I'm sorry I've uh, spoken so long. But that's uh, uh, the point I wanted to finish on. And uh, there you are, the meaning of life, different perspectives on it, with a little bit of uh, emphasis on what's on the miles. So if there are any questions, I think we've got a couple more minutes. Uh, very happy to take any. Um, I, I don't think in all the time that I was paying attention, you really said anything at all about consciousness, apart from a brief reference to babies. Is this thing working? Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, I think it was um, probably in either, well, probably in Uspensky that I might have read the suggestion that the whole of Western psychology has sort of missed the fact that we don't remember ourselves most of the time. And I think I myself can see what he meant by that. I wonder if you've got anything you'd like to say about it, because this business about meaning in, yeah. in life must perhaps be, be closely related to how much you're really aware of. Um, and I, you know, I don't mean just in... Um, you know, in the sense of uh, while you're in the sort of everyday sort of wakefulness that most of us are in. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I just wait for these people to drift out. Yeah. There's one last question if we can tie that or somebody over the side of that hand up. We'll just end on that question. Just end on that. Okay, so brief response and then we'll, we'll finish up. The question was about consciousness. Uh, I haven't spoken much about consciousness apart from mentioning babies. Uh, births and their early life uh, you know do we live a lot of our lives in a state of not being aware of stuff and I thought immediately of what Nietzsche says here which effectively is that it's a jolly good job that we don't remain conscious all of the time not because we like to be in a state of blissful oblivion but because action would become impossible if we were totally conscious all the time because we'd be too aware we'd be too present to act involves a bit of strategic forgetting. You have to not know in order to be able to do. There has to be a point for action to happen that you have to interrupt the full presence that you're in all the time. So if you're conscious all the time, you can't 
act. Uh, it's not, maybe it's not a coincidence that meditation and contemplation go together, because it's hard to act when you're so completely aware as you are in a meditative state. He says, you know, forgetting is key to action. You've got to forget and bracket things off, back to Husserl, in order to do, to do stuff. You've got to suppress things, forget, in order to be able to, to move forward. Um, if you remembered everything all of the time, you would be in a constant state of reprocessing. So there's something about moving forward in time, being and acting, which involves forgetting, not knowing, and not being conscious. So although we make a ready and perhaps hasty connection between consciousness and action, for Nietzsche actually it's the opposite. Um, it's, it's not knowing, not being conscious, that allows us actually to do stuff and move forward. Quick answer. If you just permit me one minute to thank Robert before we do the book signing. Um, I'm not quite sure how to thank you. I have to say that I've done many of these talks at LSE, and uh, last 90 minutes I think have been absolutely fascinating for me, and I hope for many people in the audience. And I was trying to think why that was, and I think it's because I mean your talk was was very generous and it was very provocative. There were so many provocations, so many questions I would have liked to ask you. I mean the provocations about you can't always get what you want reminded me of the Rolling Stones. Uh, when you get on to Freud and Cigar, Clinton came to mind, but we won't go further in that direction. I mean, I think more seriously, uh, somebody once said it might have been uh, George, Orwell, George Orwell, somebody much more erudite and eloquent than me, that, you know, you know a really good talk and a really good lecture when an intelligent and an articulate person uh, speaks to you openly. I, to me, that's what you did tonight. So I hope on behalf of all of the audience, I'd like to thank you very much for coming to LSE.